This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialists. Good morning. In today's headlines, U.S. Special Forces take out an ISIS leader in Somalia. At least 10 other suspected terrorists were killed in the dramatic helicopter descent. The Justice Department has dismantled a prolific ransomware gang. The group called Hive allegedly extorted around $100 million from over 1,000 victims. We have more on the takedown. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis goes on the offensive against criminals. Find out more about the legislation he proposed on fentanyl, the death penalty, and more. Tensions are rising in Gaza following an exchange of missile strikes. The strikes followed a raid by the Israeli military on Thursday, which killed several suspected terrorists. And some tips on parenting coming up as well. We hear from an expert that says some methods will hurt your long-term relationship with your kids. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. And I'm Evelyn Lee. Good morning. Today's Friday, January 27th. Our first story today comes out of Somalia. U.S. Special Forces have killed a senior ISIS leader there. Ten other alleged terrorists were also taken out. The operation targeted Bilal al-Sudani in a mountainous cave complex. He was a key financial facilitator for the global terrorist organization. The special operations team descended on the complex from helicopters. They were then engaged in a firefight with ISIS terrorists. No U.S. forces were killed in the raid. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the action leaves the United States and its partners safer and more secure. President Joe Biden gave final approval to carry out the operation this week. A ransomware gang of hackers called Hive has extorted around $100 million in ransom payments from victims worldwide. The FBI has been surveilling and disrupting their operations over the last several months by having their own hackers break into the network. Now the Justice Department says they've taken them down. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Hive's devious activities and downfall. Simply put, using lawful means, we hacked the hackers. If Hive members try to use their network today, they'll be greeted with this screen. The ransomware group servers in Los Angeles were seized. Servers in Germany and the Netherlands were also seized. Attorney General Merrick Garland says Hive affiliates targeted critical infrastructure and important industries in the U.S. He gave a few examples of their history. Hive affiliates deployed ransomware on computers owned by a Midwest hospital. At a time when COVID-19 was surging in communities around the world, the Hive ransomware attack prevented the hospital from accepting any new patients. Garland says the Texas school district's computer systems were also attacked. The Hive ransomware group used a double extortion model to hold digital systems hostage and demand ransom. First, they would hack into a system and steal sensitive data, then deploy malicious software to encrypt it and render it unusable. They would provide a decryption key to unlock the system and promise not to publish any stolen data for a ransom. Investigators say they were able to save over 300 victims around the world from extortion and prevent at least $130 million in ransom payments. The FBI discreetly lurked inside the Hive network and stole the keys to decrypt infected systems. They would then give victims the keys before Hive could demand payment. 
Agents went undetected for seven months before they cut off Hive's operations. FBI Tampa gained clandestine, persistent access to Hive's control panel. And since then, for the past seven months, we've been able to exploit that access to help victims while keeping Hive in the dark. FBI Director Christopher Wray says anyone involved in Hive should be concerned. No arrests have been made yet. Garland told reporters to stay tuned. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In other news, five fired Memphis police officers were charged with murder yesterday for the killing of Tyree Nichols, a motorist that died three days after a run-in with them during a traffic stop. And here's NTD's Jeremy Sandberg with more on the ongoing investigation. The fired officers each face charges of second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. Local District Attorney Steve Mulroy says although the officers each played different roles, they are all responsible. We had previously met with the family of Tyree Nichols to go over what these charges were going to be. Body cam footage from the officers will be released to the public Friday evening. Mulroy says releasing the video too early in the investigation could have influenced suspects and witnesses. Suspects could tailor their statements to law enforcement based on what they've seen in the video. David Rausch, director of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, says what he saw in the video was absolutely appalling. What happened here does not at all reflect proper policing. This was wrong. This was criminal. Nichols' family attorneys say the footage shows them pepper spraying and restraining the 29-year-old before savagely beating him for three minutes. Tyree was helpless, he was defenseless, he was restrained. And that's why you're seeing the types of charges that you're seeing here. The family is urging supporters to protest peacefully. Nichols' mother says she doesn't want anyone burning up the city or tearing up the streets because that's not what her son stood for. Members of the community held a candlelight vigil for Nichols Thursday night and called for justice. Justice for Tyree! Justice for Tyree! Relatives are accusing the officers of causing Nichols to have a heart attack and kidney failure. Second-degree murder is punishable by 15 to 60 years in prison under Tennessee law. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Two EMTs with the Memphis Fire Department were also fired. Additional officers are under investigation. Four of the five former officers indicted are out on bail. One is still in jail. A mandatory life sentence for targeting children with fentanyl and death penalty reform. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis proposed new legislation at an event titled Preserving Law and Order in Florida yesterday. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the governor's ideas. Don't take safe communities for granted. The Sunshine State Governor started out the event criticizing what he called faddish policies and so-called experiments in other parts of the country. DeSantis derided the attacking of police and the idea they can be replaced with social services. He lambasted controversial policies like no cash bail, mentioning New York and Illinois. But we also just want to make sure that if somebody is committing criminal offenses, of course, you have due process, you go through, they got to prove you guilty, that's the state's burden, and that's how it'll always be. Uh, but just cycling people back out on the street if they can commit additional crimes, that is not helping uh, these communities. Soaring crime in places like Philadelphia, he said, is a direct result of their pro-criminal policies. 
Discussing the death penalty, DeSantis brought up the case of the Parkland school shooting, saying if a state has capital punishment, it has to hand it down for the worst of the worst crimes. He proposed a supermajority on juries in place of a unanimous decision. And I have no problem if you oppose capital. Many people do. But that's the law in Florida, and so you've got to be willing to administer that. Uh, one can get on and maybe scuttle it, but if you, get, if you need three or four to scuttle, it makes it much more difficult. On fentanyl, DeSantis talked about how deadly the drug is in causing overdoses. He pointed to recent discoveries of the drug, made to look like candy, and says Florida has to protect its most vulnerable. And so we're going to make it a first-degree felony to possess, sell, or manufacture fentanyl or other controlled substances to look like candy. And going to add a mandatory life sentence and $1 million penalty uh, if you're targeting children. Other proposals of the governor include life in prison for child rapists, no good behavior time for sexual crimes, and increased funding to combat human smuggling. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A coalition of 25 states is suing the Biden administration. The issue is a Department of Labor rule that affects millions of retirement accounts. The new rule allows 401k managers to invest clients' money in environmental, social and governance, or ESG funds. The states argue this violates the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. And that's because it lets fund managers consider and promote non-financial benefits when making investment decisions. The lawsuit says the rule puts the retirement savings of 152 million workers at risk. It adds that the rule is promoting the Biden administration's climate agenda. And we're looking at some of Biden's border policies as well. While the White House says these policies have proven effective, his latest measures are meeting with strong opposition, and this time from Democrats. 77 Democrats on Capitol Hill are decrying asylum restrictions, accusing the administration of reviving Trump-era border policies. And today's Melina Weiskopf has more. Anyone who tells you that the only way to secure our border is to punish asylum seekers is lying. It's why we are appalled to see President Biden replicate President Trump's immigration strategy. Some Democrats on Capitol Hill today decrying the Biden administration's recently enacted border policies. Earlier this month, the administration implemented new enforcement and parole measures targeted at countries like Haiti, Nicaragua, and Cuba. Now, under this new enforcement and parole policy, the administration is expanding the legal pathway for immigrants from those countries up to 30,000 per month to come into the U.S. legally if they have an eligible sponsor. If they come illegally from those countries, they will be subject to expedited removal plus a five-year ban on re-entry. Now, the DHS this week has touted this new enforcement and parole measure as effective in addressing the border surge, uh, writing that they've seen a 97% decline compared to last month in illegal crossings from those particular countries. And while this new policy that the administration has enacted uh, does provide for a uh, two year humanitarian parole and work authorization, this is still not enough for some Democrats on Capitol Hill. We're here today because we expect more from the Biden administration than we did from the Trump administration. 
77 Democrats wrote a letter to President Biden urging him to quickly end Title 42, also opposing an expected proposal by the Biden administration that would require asylum seekers to apply for asylum in the countries that they're traveling through to get to the U.S. Those Democrats say that they believe this resembles a Trump-era rule known as a transit ban and should be rejected. But the White House denies that this proposal is anything like Trump's. And lawmakers from both parties do acknowledge that the immigration system does need to be updated, but with Republicans pushing for border security first and Democrats pushing for a pathway to citizenship first, this leaves the two parties miles apart on an agreement that could actually update the outdated immigration laws. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Coming up, have you ever thought that playing the violin and solving a Rubik's Cube could go hand in hand? A world champion speed cuber says his violin skills contribute to his success. And shape-shifting is no longer just science fiction. Scientists have designed a robot that can shift between liquid and solid states. Stay tuned for that when we come back. Welcome back. Airstrikes in Gaza early this morning. The conflict there has escalated after an attack in the West Bank killed nine people. Entity's Cost Temenas has more on the attacks from both sides. Tensions are soaring following airstrikes on the Gaza Strip. The strikes happened in the early hours of Friday morning local time, following a raid carried out by Israel on Thursday. Israel's military conducted a rare daytime operation in the Jenin camp in the West Bank, killing nine Palestinians, including at least seven suspected terrorists and a woman in her 60s. Israel says the raid intended to prevent an imminent attack on Israelis. The Palestinian Health Ministry reported several others were wounded. The raid was the deadliest to occur in over two decades. Footage released by Israel's military shows airstrikes on Gaza following Palestinian rocket attacks in southern Israel. Five rockets were fired at Israel, three were intercepted. Israel's military retaliated by targeting what they called an underground rocket manufacturing site in central Gaza, as well as a military base belonging to the terrorist group Hamas in northern Gaza. According to Palestinian witnesses, the target of the attacks was a Hamas training camp. Israel's defense ministry has hinted that it will stop its air attacks if Palestine ends its rocket strikes, but also instructed the military to be prepared for new strikes in the Gaza Strip if necessary. Hamas has vowed revenge for the raid. Kostemanes, NTD News. Now back to the U.S. What would you do to get a break on the price of eggs? People are flocking on to one farm in Southern California from miles away looking for a deal on that singular breakfast table staple. If you're waiting for egg prices to come crashing down, good luck. The prices we pay are still rising to record highs, like the eggs bound for your kitchen on this egg levator. I've seen uh, 18 eggs for eight bucks. On average, nationwide, families in December paid $4.25 for a dozen eggs. A year ago, it was $1.78. Business is booming at Frank Hilliker's Egg Farm near San Diego. Customers come from across Southern California after leaving grocery stores empty-handed or shell-shocked by prices. 
So we've had to put some limits on what people can get. Hilliker says his 23,000 birds have so far been spared from the worst avian flu outbreak to ever hit the U.S. The virus has killed tens of millions of birds since early 2022, limiting egg supply and driving up prices. Hilliker says business is a delicate balance. But the pressures are growing. Our feed is over double. Our packaging has doubled. Fuel's up 50%. The key question for the year ahead. Frank, do you see prices coming down anytime soon? I see prices coming down a little, but I don't know exactly how much the market's been falling. A senior consumer food analyst with Rabobank says food prices may not deflate until 2024. Until then, the fracas overpriced poultry protein will likely keep going, rolling into 2023. Science fiction has become reality. Scientists have designed their own miniature robot that can shapeshift and even escape cages. This video was taken as part of their research, which was published Wednesday in the journal Matter. As you can see, the robot is solid while in the cage, but it slowly liquefies to get out. Scientists say they got the idea from sea cucumbers, which can alter their stiffness to protect themselves. These robots are magnetic, can conduct electricity, and can shift between liquid and solid states to navigate tricky and compromising environments. Scientists believe the technology can have a host of real-life applications. The National Natural Science Foundation of China funded the study. And have you ever thought that playing violin and solving a Rubik's Cube go hand in hand. Well, this student in Michigan is mastering both, and he says the two skills can help each other. Let's take a look. This is Stanley Chapel. He can play box violin sonatas from memory, and he is one of the world's foremost speed cubers, a person capable of quickly solving a Rubik's Cube. I see music and cubane as very equivalent in terms of how how, how my interest level is in them and how I approach them as, as disciplines. The 21-year-old is capable of remembering thousands of algorithms. He can solve the Rubik's Cube in just 17 seconds, blindfolded. He says his violin skills contribute to his success. Repetition, breaking things down into their smallest fundamental elements, and all of these different things we, we use and utilize to improve at an instrument and being able to take these into the world of cubing has, un, has, has certainly been a huge help to my progression through that. Chapel grew up in Michigan. He is a junior majoring in violin performance at the University of Michigan's School of Music, Theater and Dance. He solved his first 3x3 Rubik's Cube when he was 14. Only five weeks later, Chapel entered his first competition, solving the cube in an average of 22 seconds. Fast forward, at the 2019 World Championship in Australia, the recent high school graduate won both events. Later this year, Chapel intends to defend his world titles in South Korea. Once he's done with school though, Chapel isn't sure how speed cubing fits into his future plans. I guess it's cool to know that like, nobody else is able to do this. But at the same time, it's like, I guess giving myself a little bit of a reality check, it's like, how much does that actually matter? You know, it's like, it's not gonna pay the bills when I get older. His dedication has surely paid off. And maybe after he graduates, we'll see him on stage playing violin sonatas.
Up next, how do you get your kids to behave the way you'd like and to accept no's? Oftentimes it's a struggle and there is one expert that says there is a chance you may be damaging your relationship with your kids. That's after the break. Welcome back. How do you get your kids to behave and accept no for an answer? It can often be a struggle and one expert says you could damage your relationship with your children if you handle it wrong. She has some advice for parents on how to deal with it. I spoke to her to find out more. Joining me now is Sarah Moore. She is the founder of Dandelion Seeds Positive Parenting. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I want to know first, First and foremost, what exactly is positive parenting? I mean, as in, what do you focus on there as a parent? I love this question. My simple definition of positive parenting is parenting with the good of the relationship in mind, where both our needs and our children's needs get to be met, and we work through connection rather than adversity. Now that's interesting. If you can just go in a little bit more detail, maybe give us a real life example to help us understand. Absolutely. So this is a huge departure from punitive parenting. Many of us were raised with parents or caregivers who, when we made a mistake, we were punished for it. And we were raised to believe that we deserved the punishment because we were somehow bad. Within the positive parenting context, we do put the relationship first and we know that the brain has to feel safe in order for us to be able to learn and the same is true for our children so if we really want to be teaching our children citing an example for your request let's say our child doesn't do something that they say they're going to do rather than getting angry and perhaps taking away their ipad or sending them to a timeout or whatever instead we get curious and we come alongside our child and say something like i noticed you didn't do the thing you said you were going to do i'm curious what's going on for you do you need support? Help me understand your perspective. And we have a dialogue with the child where we respect what they have to say, we respect their personal experience, and we work together for optimal outcomes rather than making them feel bad for what they didn't do. Does that help? Yes, and do you have any, because obviously the child in different uh, section, in different age groups, they're different. So how about a teenager that just really isn't willing to listen to you? How do you approach that? I love that question. Oftentimes, and it's a tough answer because it requires that we get a little bit introspective as well. Oftentimes when we see that a child is being stubborn or strong-willed, best thing we can do is look in the mirror and say, am I trying to force this? Is the child's perception of me being stubborn or strong-willed as well? Because often as the adult, if my child isn't complying, I tend to get louder. I dig in my heels even more. And all I'm doing is really reflecting that stubbornness. So if I'm able to soften and to get curious and really actively listen to my teen, and honestly, this works for many ages, but if I can actively listen to what they're trying to communicate to me, I can help them feel seen and heard and validated. And from that place of emotional safety, their hard edges tend to melt away and we can connect and problem solve together. What do you do when you feel like you've really reached your limit? 
That's a great question because we've all been there, even though I literally wrote the book on it and, you know, whatever, I am right there struggling alongside every other parent in the universe. And we do need to get introspective once again. We get to figure out what do I feel, first of all. Maybe I have more going on. Maybe I'm tired. Maybe I'm hungry. Maybe I had a conflict that somehow I brought home with me, and that is contributing to the conflict I now have with my child. Once I identify my underlying feeling, I can also identify what I'm needing. Maybe I need some space. Maybe I need some food or some water. Might be something really basic. Or if it is a conflict that I'm having with my child, I have to remember that it is me working together with my child against whatever problem we're trying to solve. The problem is external to us, but the relationship needs to be first. So if I can show up for myself in whatever small or big ways that I need to in that moment to figure out what do I need to be peaceful, even if it just means I need to go stand outside and breathe for a couple of minutes, then I have more to bring to the relationship and I won't be so reactive. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for your advice. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. And Sarah also said that she hears of many parents that don't have that close of a relationship with their kids. And she says it's oftentimes because they weren't gentle enough. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that this doesn't mean you shouldn't discipline your children. I don't think that's what she was saying. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. It's just, I think, a different kind of way of discipline and also be more aware of the kind of example you're setting. For yeah, I think a good balance is key. You know, children need structure, but they also need a gentle approach, too. Couldn't agree more. On that note, that's it for this week. Write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.